This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Cervical cancer is the fourth most common malignancy in women worldwide, although the number of new cases in the U.S. has been declining. The vast majority of cervical cancers are caused by infection with the human papillomavirus. And due to a combination of HPV immunization and early detection with cervical cancer screening, advanced cases are becoming much less common. And when detected early, cervical cancer is one of the more treatable malignancies. Although cervical cancer screening is relatively easy to perform, the guidelines for performing the test have become much more complicated. We'll discuss cervical cancer screening in today's podcast including when to start screening, how often patients should be screened, and when we can stop screening. My guest is Dr. Evelyn Reynolds from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Evelyn, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the real basic question. Who's at risk for getting cervical cancer? What are the risk factors? Well, the risk factors for cervical cancer overlap with risk factors for exposure to human papillomavirus or HPV, or the inability to clear HPV. As you mentioned in your intro, human papillomavirus is an important factor in the development of cervical cancer. The incidence of cervical cancer is related to the prevalence of chronic HPV in the population. So it's important in counseling to note that HPV is a common infection. HPV is highly transmissible and is now considered to be the most common sexually transmitted infection in most populations. Most are able to clear the virus within two years. Do we know if HPV causes all cervical cancer? Are there other causes? And if somebody has not had HPV, could they still get cervical cancer? Yeah. Well, the vast majority are HPV related. And looking at the types of cervical cancer, there are predominantly two histologies that we talk about, squamous cell and adenocarcinomas. Both of those are predominantly HPV related. And now we know even some of the more rare types, adenosquamous and neuroendocrine, still are predominantly HPV-related. Now, there is a medication, diethylstilbestrol, or DES, that was prescribed up until 1971. In utero exposure to that can cause cervical cancer and vaginal cancer as well. Of course, since the use stopped in 1971, any exposure in utero would have been already known. Typically, it causes a very early development of cervical cancer. Okay. How treatable or curable is cervical cancer? Is it a rapidly progressing malignancy? So cervical cancer actually is not very rapidly progressing. The natural history from HPV infection to development of cervical cancer takes years, potentially decades. So there's plenty of opportunity to intervene. Since the link of HPV as the necessary cause of cervical cancer, since that link has been known, HPV-based technology has become the center of prevention strategies. So this really is an ideal 
situation for screening. I mean, we have an effective screening test. It's a slow growing malignancy, a slowly progressing malignancy. And if we find it early, the likelihood of cure is quite high. Yes. Let's talk about the prevention. How effective has the screening of cervical cancer been? Since the development of the pap smear or Papanicolaou smear, cervical cancer rapidly declined. Really that test became available in the 1940s and within a generation or two by the 70s or 80s, the mortality from cervical cancer had drastically declined. It still persists. Now the rates are, it's relatively rare. You talked about worldwide, it's the fourth common cause of cancer. Here in the U.S., it's relatively rare, I should say, but still, you know, since you mentioned or since we've been discussing that really it's ideal and preventable, the fact that it's still present is surprising. So we hope to do more. So in part of that, as I mentioned, are the HPV-related testing strategies which have been implemented along with cytology that helps us improve both detection and helps prevent. Because if we can detect in precancerous stages, then we can intervene and prevent cancer. And of course, another big part of this has been vaccination, which has been available and FDA approved. So we have a vaccine that can prevent HPV infections. In your practice, do you see much advanced cervical cancer? It is present. Unfortunately, we still do see advanced cervical cancer. Ideally, as a G1 oncologist, if we would never see any cervical cancer again, that is a goal to eradicate cervical cancer, but we are not there yet. So do you think it can be eliminated with the HPV immunization? Do you think we can ever eradicate the development of cervical cancer? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2018, the World Health Organization's Director General actually announced the global call for action. Then in 2020, the World Health Assembly adopted the global strategy for cervical cancer elimination. The goal is an incidence rate below four per 100,000 women. Here in the U.S., we're about 6 to 10, depending. But achieving that focuses on three main targets, so both vaccination, screening, and treatment. The goal is 90-70-90, that um, by 2030, 90% of population at risk will be vaccinated, 70% will be screened, and 90% will have access to treatment of precancerous lesions. And with reaching those numbers, we would be able to eradicate cervical cancer. Okay. So when should we start cervical cancer screening? Cervical cancer screening should start at age 21, regardless of first intercourse. And what if that patient has never been sexually active? Is that still the recommendation? And if so, why? Yeah, that is still the recommendation. In rare cases, HPV can be spread by genital contact without sexual intercourse. This may include genital contact even with someone of the same sex if they have HPV. So in addition, 
since HPV is the main cause of cervical cancer, it's, but it's not the only cause. There are other cofactors such as smoking, immunocompromised status, such as HIV infection. Those and other factors can affect your risk for getting HPV and developing cervical cancer. So the recommendation is still to screen at age 21, regardless okay. of sexual activity history. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, when I first started my practice, and it's been a few years now, all we had was the pap smear. It's gotten mm -hmm. a little bit more complex now. What does cervical cancer screening consist of currently? Yeah. There are actually three available cervical cancer screening strategies at this time. So just primary HPV screening or co-testing, which is a combination of HPV testing and cervical cytology. But cervical cytology or the pap smear alone still remains an option. So what are the potential results we see from these tests? Where it became more complex or involved uh, is because now the guidelines take into account risk and risk thresholds. So really what we're trying to prevent is progression to cervical cancer, meaning a precursor or, or to that is high-grade cervical dysplasia. So the results are still the same as they have been as far as the cytology, but they combine them with HPV, the reflex testing, if indicated, or HPV testing to be able to give you individualized risk and assess what your next steps will be. Can you go over what the next steps would be based on the results that we get? And this is where it can be individualized. And there is actually a, a free website put out by the ASCCP where you can input your patient's personal information. So for instance, I did some testing around, uh, playing around with it before <laughs> this podcast. And mm -hmm. if I had a patient who was between the ages of 30 and 65, for instance, who had an ASCUS pap and was HPV positive, if we had record of her previous paps prior to that, and both of those were normal, negative, HPV negative, then her risk, immediate risk of CIN3, is below the threshold. It's 3.6%. So that would trigger, ask is HPV positive, but previous screens were negative in terms of cytology and HPV, then she would just come back in a year for another co-test. But if we take that same result, same age, woman 30 to 65, now she's asked is HPV positive, but say her previous pap was negative cytology, but HPV positive. Well, that raises her risk above the 4% threshold. Now her risk of having CIN3 is 5.4%. So she would be triaged to immediate colposcopy. And this is where the complexity starts uh, affecting us as providers. It gets yeah. very complicated to try to figure out what, uh, what needs to be done next. You know, on occasion, we'll see a cervical cancer screening tests coming back, no endocervical cells were seen. Why does this happen and what does it mean and what do we do about it? Yeah, the pap smear is a sampling both of the endocervical and ectocervical cells. So glandular versus glandular and columnar versus the squamous cell. So the 
cytologist, reading pathologist wants to make sure they have a good sampling. So they're also looking at the presence of those endocervical or glandular types to make sure that the patient was adequately sampled. Because a lot of these precursor lesions or cancers may arise in that endocervical canal. So a screen that says no endocervical cells present may mean that you don't have enough information to make a determination. Now that along with HPV testing, again, will kind of help triage. So it's a younger population and they didn't have HPV testing if you did cytology only, then you can hopefully reflex on, add on to an HPV reflex test to that sample. Or the younger patients, since there is such a slow natural progression of the, the disease, you can, even if the endocervical cells are not present, continue routine surveillance in that population. Great. Now, if they're between that 30 to 65 age of screening and HPV is was tested and is negative, they can still continue routine screening because that negative HPV result is enough information to state that they are below that risk threshold that will need intervention, mm -hmm. further detection with colposcopy or treatment. Now, if you have that screening test, insufficient endocervical tells, but there is an HPV positive result along with it. If you did a co-test, particularly if you had genotype testing to specific HPV 16 and 18 types, then that likely still has a high enough threshold that they need either repeat testing at a earlier interval or reflex to colposcopy, if, especially if that HPV specific 16 and 18 types are positive. Because that alone, since those two types account for 70% of cancers, that's enough to triage you into a greater risk. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that we're interested in obtaining a pap smear at that endocervical junction and Usually that occurs on the surface of the cervix, right near the os. And mm -hmm. when I first started practice, all we used was a spatula for collecting the cells for a pap smear. Mm -hmm. And then years later, we uh, added this endocervical brush. And is that because some women then have this junction more in the endocervical canal and we're picking those up with the brush instead of the spatula? Correct. So it kind of can get your cells deeper in the, in the canal. Right. Okay, good. So... To continue the complexity, how do we determine when this patient needs her next pap smear or cervical screening? It goes back to it, it depends. Yeah. So mm -hmm. ideally, if it's negative cytology and HPV negative, then the next testing won't be due for five years. Okay. However, you know, it's a screening tool and you're looking at risk. So if any of those, if cytology is not negative, meaning it's abnormal, or the HPV is positive, then your next screen will be sooner than that. And it is all based on the combination of those two. Okay. And when can it stop? When can we discontinue cervical cancer screening safely? Women can stop having cervical cancer screening after the age of 65 with certain other conditions. So if they have not had any history of moderate or severe abnormal cells or cervical cancer, 
and they have been adequately tested in the last 10 years. So you wanna make sure that they have had either three negative PAP test results in a row or two negative HPV tests in a row or two negative co-tests in a row within the past 10 years. So if a woman had a pap smear, you know, in her 40s that was negative and now you're doing the first at age 65 and it's negative, she doesn't necessarily qualify for not having further screening because she hasn't met the criteria of adequate screening in the last 10 years. Also, evidence shows that if you've had high-grade dysplasia, even if it's treated, your risk continues for up to 25 years. So say at age 50, a woman had a leap for CIN3, and now she's 65. She hasn't had 25 years of post-follow-up to that dysplasia, so she would need to continue also. Okay. So let's say we have a patient who's now 65. All of her previous screenings have been normal, and she now has a new sexual partner. Does yeah. she need to restart the clock and have uh, cervical cancer screening again, or would she no longer need any more screening? If a woman reaches age 65 and has had adequate screening, then she should be able to stop. However, the caveat is this is a screening test based on risk. So if a patient feels that their risk has changed or increased, then it may be worth extending based on shared decision-making with that. There are studies, uh, there's been a Danish study that looked at catch-up testing for older and insufficiently screened women with HPV. So say they hadn't had a prior HPV. So that also may be beneficial. If a woman had previously only been screened by cytology, you may want to do 10 years of catch-up testing with mm -hmm. HPV, it would just be two tests over that next 10 years. So again, this is another situation where it depends um, and it varies and, and it's worth a conversation with your patient to figure out where their risk level, where you can stratify them and, and what makes the most sense for them. Well, Evelyn, you certainly have job security just in the area of cervical cancer screening. It, uh, it gets very complicated. So can you give maybe two or three key points that summarize our discussion on cervical cancer screening? Yeah. So I would say one point is that cervical cancer can be eliminated if we are successful at vaccination and screening strategies. And that screening does not apply in the symptomatic patient, I would say. This is a screen, so everything we've discussed has just been on asymptomatic patients. Patients who have symptoms require a diagnostic workup and something more than a screening workup. We've been discussing cervical cancer screening with Dr. Evelyn Reynolds from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Evelyn, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.